The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So, does anyone know what today is? Like on the liturgical calendar, does anyone know? I told the nine o'clock that you guys were much smarter than they were and that some of you would know knowing they're new. Any guess? Well, it is Orthodox Easter. So a matter of fact, that's one of the things you can be praying about. So, so many Ukrainian Christians are Eastern Orthodox and they are celebrating Easter today. But today on the liturgical calendar is what for centuries has been called Low Sunday. And the reason that it was, it's called Low Sunday is because there's actually no liturgy associated with it. It's the first Sunday of Easter or this time called Eastertide, which you've heard a little bit about already this morning. But it's called Low Sunday because it's associated with low church, low liturgy. But over the years, more and more clergy have started to call it Low Sunday because it is the lowest attended Sunday of the year. <laughs> so when I say, I'm glad to see you, I'm really glad to see you. I thought it was like be me and the other people who are paid to be here. Like I didn't think that you would actually show up. And it makes a whole lot of sense. Right, especially for those of you who were with us uh, last week at White Oak, especially if you were with us at the nine o'clock and not just sweating it out at the 11 o'clock, that that's such an incredible time. Like everyone's together, there's free tacos, and it's such a celebration, and Pastor Chris is in the sound booth playing DJ as everybody's coming in. Like it's such an up time and it actually takes a lot of energy. You've got family in town, all of the celebration, all of these rituals and traditions around Holy Week. And then after that, everybody just kind of go, I think I'll sit in this week, especially now that it's online. And it feels so natural to just give yourself that exhale because it is a, such an incredible time celebrating Easter. And what's interesting about that is that it's been that way for centuries, that the, that the church even acknowledges this, that after the feast day of Easter Sunday, of Resurrection Sunday, that there is this lull. And what's fascinating is that the disciples have the same experience. There's so much going on in the aftermath of the resurrection. Jesus is resurrected. He spends time with the disciples teaching. They have breakfast on the beach. And then they're trying to figure out like what happens next. And then we get this incredible story of what happens in the wake of Jesus' resurrection throughout the book of Acts. And this is what Acts 1 tells us about this incredibly exciting time. When they had gathered just outside Jerusalem at the Mount of Olives, they asked Jesus. So Jesus is still around. The disciples say, is now the time, Lord? The time when you will reestablish your kingdom in our land of Israel? Because what else would you expect? Like Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and they have been expecting for thousands of years that the coming king would come and establish Jerusalem, establish Israel as his everlasting kingdom. They're waiting and anticipating 
the kind of king that you and I and they know has been throughout history, someone to rule and reign over a specific region. Is now the time, Lord? And Jesus says, the Father on his own authority has determined the ages and epochs of history. But you have not been given this knowledge. Here's the knowledge you need. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Well, power sounds good. And you will be my witnesses. First here in Jerusalem, then beyond to Judea and Samaria, and finally to the farthest places on earth. As he finished this commission, he began to rise from the ground before their eyes until the clouds obscured him from their vision. As they strained to get one last glimpse of him going into heaven, the Lord's emissaries realized two men in white robes were standing among them. They say, you Galileans, why are you standing here staring up in the sky? Maybe because we just saw a dude float into the sky. That hadn't happened before. We're going to check it out for a minute. This Jesus who is leaving you and ascending to heaven will return in the same way you see him departing. Then the disciples returned to Jerusalem. Their short journey from the Mount of Olives was an acceptable Sabbath day's walk. Back in the city, they went to the room where they were staying, a second floor room. The whole group devoted themselves to constant prayer with one accord. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James, a number of women, including Mary, Jesus's mother, and some of Jesus's brothers. As the disciples prayed, Peter stood among the group of about 120 people and made this proposal. My friends, everything in the Hebrew scriptures had to be fulfilled, including what the Holy Spirit foretold through David about Judas. As you know, Judas was one of us and participated in our ministry until he guided the authorities to arrest Jesus. He was paid handsomely for his betrayal and he bought a field with the blood money but he died on that land, falling so that his abdomen burst and his internal organs gushed out, which is every junior high boy's favorite part of the story. <laughs> News of this death spread to everyone in Jerusalem. So Judas's property is known as Hakeldamah, which means field of blood. In this way, one of David's Psalms was fulfilled, may their camps be bleak, with not one left in any tent. But the Psalms also include these words, let his position of oversight be given to another. So we need to determine his replacement from among the men who have been with us during all of the Lord Jesus' travels among us, from his baptism by John until his ascension. We need someone to join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So just imagine for a moment what this is like. Like you have seen things over the last several weeks that no one in the history of the world has ever seen. Like you saw a man crucified and dead and buried and he rose from the grave and started walking around and talking to people and showing his scars. And then you heard him teach. And then just now you saw this same man ascend into the heavens 
and they told you, he told you, what's going to happen to you next is that you're going to receive power from on high. This is a high point in your life. No one has ever experienced anything like this. And what's the first thing you do when you get all together in the big room, you get everybody there together, what do you have to do? Have a committee meeting. You've been there where where you've been expecting something to be really great and you've experienced something really great and everything else is a disappointment. You've been in those meetings when you're like, this meeting, this meeting could have been an email. (laughs) Like, in fact, this, this email could have been a text. I don't even know if this even needed to happen. Like, why are we together? So last, last December, my friend Justin was here at the nine o'clock and he pastors an incredible church in Raleigh and he asked me to come and speak during Advent last year. And so I went and I love Justin and his church, but I really went because my brother lives in Raleigh and I figured this was a great free trip for me to see my brother. And so my brother comes to church that Sunday, hears me preach and he says, look, we got, we got reservations tonight at this place. It's kind of famous in Raleigh. And he says, don't eat anything all day. You're not going to want to eat anything all day. And I said, okay, if I pass out preaching, that's on you, but I'm not going to eat anything. So I don't. We preach. I go back to his house. He told me not to eat anything all day, but apparently he wanted me to drink stuff all day because he just opened up this enormous wine cabinet and like just started opening virtually everything that he had. And I said, well, this is going to be an interesting night. And we finally go to this restaurant, and it's called the Angus Barn. If you've ever been there, I'm sure some of you have. And we go to the maitre d' in front, and he gives them the name and the party. There's four of us. It's me and my brother and his wife and my brother's mother-in-law. And they said, okay, we'll have a table for you in two hours. And so my brother says, well, hold on. We go outside. He goes upstairs to see somebody. He comes back down about five minutes and goes, so we go upstairs, there's this table in the corner just for us, and I do something that I've never done in my life before. I've never, I just have never ordered it before, but he said, you've got to try the prime rib. And so he's my older brother. Once a year, I do something he asked me to do because it helps his ego. <laughs> and so I try the prime rib and let me, like, this is the most incredible thing that I've ever tasted in my entire life. I come home and I tell Rochelle, like, you need to learn how to fix prime rib. (laughs) And I have been since December, like trying to chase this prime rib and I can never get there. Like nothing ever lives up to it. Like, and that's what happens. Like we keep wanting to relive, to rehash these events. And that's what the disciples wanted and what they got. They said, well, what you need is more people. You ever had the experience in your life, maybe at work or in your family, and you come up against something and you don't really quite know what to do and you start looking around the room like for a more adultier adult than you? Like who's in charge here? Like, how are we going to figure all this out? 
because you've never done it before. And you really thought when you were younger, you thought when you became an adult that you would know something and it turns out we don't. I've told my daughters plenty of times, like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. We're, we're crossing our fingers and praying. Maybe you'll turn out okay. I have no idea. But whether professionally or personally, we run up against a wall sometimes, and that's when we have to come to terms with the reality. As we're looking around, like, there's just us. Like, there's, there's no grand scheme that somebody else came up with. Like, there's, there's just us. And if this is going to happen, if something's going to develop, if we're going to move forward, like, it's just us. And that's what happens with the disciples. They replace Judas in Acts 1. Then comes Acts 2 and is the day of Pentecost. And they start preaching to people in their own tongue, in their own language. And thousands of people come to the church. They hear the message of Jesus. And then in Acts 3, they begin teaching and healing people and traveling. And constantly they are teaching and traveling and healing and getting arrested and beaten. They're being flogged. And the entire time the church prays. And they just keep going and keep going. And when you open up the book of Acts... Things happen so fast. It sounds like this all happened in about nine months, but it really happened over the course of many, many, many years. And then you have this scene from Acts 17. And Paul and Silas have been out preaching and healing, and that's causing a lot of pain and trouble. And this is what Luke tells us in Acts 17. He says, after leaving Philippi and passing through Amphipolis, in Apollonia, Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica. There was a Jewish synagogue there. And as he had done in other cities, Paul attended the synagogue and presented arguments based on the Hebrew scriptures that the anointed had to suffer and rise from the dead. Who is this suffering and rising anointed one I am proclaiming to you? He is Jesus. He came back the next two Sabbaths, repeating the same pattern, some of the ethnically Jewish people from the synagogue were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Even more devout Greeks who had affiliated with Judaism came to believe, along with quite a few of the city's leading women. Seeing this movement growing and unconvinced, the unconvinced Jewish people became protective and angry. They found some ruffians hanging out in the marketplace, which is always where you go to find ruffians. <laughs> they found them in the marketplace and convinced them to help start a riot. Soon a mob formed and the whole city was seething with tension. The mob was going street by street looking for Paul and Silas who were nowhere to be found. Frustrated, when the mob came to the house of a man named Jason, now known as a believer, they grabbed him and some other believers they found there and dragged him to the city officials. So about five years ago, uh, one of my closest friends, his name is Jonathan, wrote a book about the book of Acts and about those early days of the church. And the title of the book 
is how to start a riot. Because what happens over and over again is that Paul and Peter and Silas, all of the disciples are going from town to town to town and they are telling people that anybody can come to Jesus. And that makes people very upset. And over and over, when the people of God are doing things that God has asked them to do, that makes some people very angry and protective. And so everywhere the apostles went, everywhere the disciples went, they started a riot. And as amazing as that is, what I find even more fascinating is that they did all of this together. I mean, just one chapter before, Paul and Silas are out doing ministry and they are joined by Timothy. It's just like when Jesus sent out his disciples the first time in Luke 10, that he sent them out together in pairs, in groups together. And why that's fascinating is that you and I are wholly immersed in a culture that teaches us that the greatest thing we can be is an individual and the best thing that we can do is do it on our own by ourselves. That no one else has any claim on us. That the greatest freedom that you can exercise is your own self-actualization. And as soon as someone else has any sort of claim on you, then that is somehow restrictive. But here's the thing, the very act of love, the minute someone loves you, the minute you love someone, that love has claims on you. And all through the scriptures, what you see are not individuals going out and doing things. You see communities going out and doing things. That's why when you get to Acts 17, the literal question that the Pharisees and the Romans are asking, they say, who are these people who are turning the world upside down? And turning the world upside down is just not something you can do alone. So I know many of you over the last two months have been in our Living the Story groups as we've been working through our brother Mike Mantell's book, trying to find a meaningful and deep adventure for your own life. And one of the highlights in Mike's book is this central idea that if you want to do something great, if you want to be a part of something meaningful with your life, if you want it to have purpose and direction, that is not something you can do on your own that it takes a group of voices speaking into your life because sometimes you're gonna wanna go one way and the wisdom of the community will help find a better way. That we are actually not made to be people who are on our own doing it by ourselves. And this has always been the nature of the church. It's who we are. 
are not a collection of individuals. We are one community. That's when we talk about things happening in Ukraine or at our Lindale campus, when we share about how we are aiding our unhoused sisters and brothers. It's not one or two people. It's our community. And you are a part, a meaningful part of that community because you cannot transform the world by yourself. When you think about Easter, this last week where we made together and Christians throughout time and across the globe made together an absolutely ridiculous proclamation that a person died and was raised from the dead. And it's understandable when people say, I've never seen that happen and I get what you believe. But I have wonder sometimes if people who were skeptical about what we believed, I wonder if they looked at what we believed and said, you know what, I'm not sure that I believe that but I am envious of that kind of community. Because later in the scriptures, when the same apostle Paul talks about what this kind of community looks like, this is what he says it's marked by. All of this is in the book of Galatians. He says it's a community that submits to one another and forgives one another, encourages one another, restores one another, accepts one another, cares for one another, bears with one another's burdens, carries one another's burdens. It's a community that at its root knows that I cannot do this alone. And all of those one another's are rooted in the one central one another. This is what John says in John 15, says my commandment to you is this, Love others as I have. There's a community of love transforming the world through the power of that community. And what if, what if you can't do what you really want to do with your life? What if you can't do that alone? And what if you can't be who you truly feel called by God to be in this world? What if you can't be that person on your own? That we are a community of people called to love and care for one another, as the New Testament puts it, as brothers and sisters. And Romans 8 says, we are one large family. And I can't be me. And you can't be you. Unless we are together. And it's only together that we become the kind of people who can turn the world upside down. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.